0: If you are new here this morning, once again, let me add my welcome. It really is lovely to have you here with us. My name is Martin. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Church Midrand. We're going to have God's word read to us by Reneilwe, And do you remember at the end when the word is read, uh, the person who reads the word said, says this is the word of God. And then we as God's people respond and we say thanks be to God. So do remember that because we are thankful to God, especially for his word. Philippians chapter 1, and Ranilwe will read from verse 18 to verse
1: 26. Thanks, Martin. Good morning, family. The to read as follows. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. This is the word of God.
0: Well, we write in the middle of a very short series called A Passion for Christ, Why I Love Jesus and Why You Should Love Him Too. Wasn't it wonderful last week to have Sean with us opening up God's Word and he talked about the grace of God. And uh, if you weren't here last week, you do need to go onto the website and listen to that wonderful, wonderful message of the grace of God. This morning I'm going to be talking about the truth of God and we're going to be using and looking at this passage ...that we have open in front of us. And it will be a great, great help to me if you do have your Bibles open. It's my job, it's every preacher's job to open up what God says in his word. And we'll be spending some time here in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Well, let me pray and ask God to help us to understand his word. Father, we come to you again this morning... For many of us, it's been a long week and there are so many, many thoughts and voices that sound in our minds. And Lord, we do pray that you may silence those voices and that by your spirit we may hear the voice of God as we read again the word of God. We thank you for your word because through it we, we meet the real word and the real truth. And so, Lord, speak to us and draw us above all to yourself, and we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Of course, I wasn't born a Christian. My parents were God-fearing, church-going Christians, so we as a family were brought up in what you may call a Christian home. Uh, My parents weren't converted, but at first I was born in the south of Johannesburg in Mondial. They took us to church, to Sunday school, Uh, first of all the Dutch Reformed Church, and then the Methodist Church, Mondial Methodist Church. And um, they actually were only converted later in life. Uh, My parents went to church all their lives, but it was only in their 60s where they actually came to know Christ personally they were converted it happened when my when my mother had a had a very serious um uh, stroke she had a major stroke and my father had a had a major nervous breakdown actually he struggled uh, with depression um most of his life and uh in fact there was one occasion when i was just a teenager where i had to take the gun out of his hand there was another occasion where we had to submit him for for treatment. He went for electric shock, which which actually was was wonderful and um, We then moved from South Africa when I was twelve years old. Uh, we moved to Zimbabwe so i 'm actually a Zimbo, which explains a lot of things and um, By the providence of God, we went to Zimbabwe because when I was 14 years old, I went to a scripture union camp in Zimbabwe where I heard the gospel, where I heard Christian truth, the Bible being taught. And in a quite profound way, I just realized that this is the truth, that Christ is the truth. And I realized that I needed to take a step. And so at that camp uh, one one evening, I sat with the leader of the tent we were in, and I prayed the prayer to receive Christ. Most of you know that I studied law. I studied at UCT. I became a lawyer and uh, practiced for a couple of years and then uh, went into Christian ministry. So I often say the Lord called me from law to grace. Um, So uh, there's, there's been a lot of ups and downs in my spiritual journey. I can't say there hasn't. There has, of course, like all of us. But over the past 50 years, I have never doubted the truthfulness of Christ and that Christ is the truth and the truth sets you free. Last week, you may remember, Sean quoted C.S. Lewis, uh, who said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, because, but because by it I see everything else. And that really has been my experience for 50 years. That the longer I've been a Christian, the longer I've known Christ, the more convinced I am of the Christian faith. The more convinced I am that Jesus and His Word explains our world, explains the brokenness of our world, explains my own brokenness, um, explains and answers the great questions of life. Who am I? Where do I come from? Why am I here? What is the purpose of life? What happens after death? Those are the great questions of life, and I've discovered, having looked at other religions, philosophies, there is nothing like Jesus and his word that gives you a comprehensive understanding that makes sense of this broken world in which we live. Of course, I realize that, that I'm not the only one who's discovered that Jesus is the truth and that the truth sets you free I found the Apostle Paul here in chapter 1, inspired by the Holy Spirit, puts it much more brilliantly, of course. He says there, chapter 1, verse 21, which is really our key verse for this morning, though we'll be looking at sections in chapter 1 and 2, verse, chapter 1, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So I want to unpack that statement. Um, that, that testimony of Paul, who loved Jesus, who lived for Jesus, who died for Jesus. Who tells us the key to his life. So let's have a look. We're going to have a look at his life, Paul's life, and Paul's death. Those will be the two main points that we have a look at this morning. But let me just go down one side road and look at the context. Because when you understand the context, it shows the depth of the statement. So the context is really chapter 1, verse 12. Have a look, chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul was in prison. He was in prison in Rome. That's what he's talking about. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. What a statement. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul had been arrested. We know from Acts 21 that Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem for preaching the gospel. And then on false accusations, he was dragged off to Rome to be tried by the emperor himself. So he's actually writing this letter while he's in a prison in Rome. He's in chains. You could almost imagine Paul the first night that he's in jail. He's been falsely falsely arrested on trumped up charges. So you think was there was there running water in the cell? Was there was there toilets? Was there toilet paper? Was there food? Were there blankets? How many were in the cell with him? Two or 10 or 20? Perhaps it was late at night. Everyone was sleeping. Uh, But Paul isn't sleeping. There's strange noises, strange smells. He's exhausted, but he can't sleep. Perhaps he starts praying. And he says, Lord, what a day. I mean, mean, what a day. I can't believe what has happened to me. Here I am in prison. Lord, I'm not quite sure what it's all about. Uh, Lord, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I had all kinds of plans this week. My diary's full. We got a five-year church planting plan for Greece and Turkey. I don't know what's going to happen now. And then he thinks. And he says, but Lord, I know you, God. I know you, sovereign. I'm not sure how you're going to do it, Lord. But I know you'll use this for good. Because you God. And you good. And then he writes, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's kind of unnerving, isn't it, that God should allow Paul. I mean, I find it unnerving. God allowed Paul to be thrown into prison unjustly. But he's kept the main thing the main thing. He's lost his freedom. He's lost his independence. His, his plans, his diary is, is down the tubes. And yet his concern, even then... Here's the spirit of the gospel, verse 21. Whatever happens, let me keep the main thing, the main thing. For me to live is Christ. So Paul understood, and we find it in his writings, inspired by the Holy Spirit. We find that Paul understood however messy and chaotic life is, and it is messy and chaotic, however incomprehensible it is. And often, my dear friends, you and I know it is incomprehensible. Paul knows, and we should know, God is in charge, God is sovereign, God is king. God's purposes for his kingdom, for his world, for his people, for me, will be accomplished even in the midst of chaos. But even more than that, Paul knows that even despite the incomprehensibility of his imprisonment, of being falsely charged on trumped-up charges, despite that, God can still use him. So that means, my dear friends, God can use us. Whether we're healthy or sick, whether we're out of prison or in prison, whether we're young or old, whether, we, whether we're happy or sad, God can still use us. Whether you're depressed or lonely, whether you're married or unmarried or divorced, God can still use you. Whether you're introvert or extrovert, God can use you when you keep the main thing the main thing. He can still use you. Many of you may know the author John Piper John Piper had cancer a few years ago and the night before his prostate cancer surgery. Uh, this is this is what he wrote. So he wrote an article um, called Don't Waste Your Cancer. And he had ten points. I'll just quote six of the headlines. It's it's stunning. He said number one, you will waste your cancer if you believe it is a curse and not a gift. Two, you will waste your cancer if you seek comfort from your odds rather than from God. Three, you will waste your cancer if you refuse to think about death. Four, you will waste your cancer if you treat sin as casually as before. Five, you will waste your cancer if you fail to use it as a means of witness to the truth and the glory of Christ. Six, you will waste your cancer if you spend too much time reading about cancer and not enough time reading about God. I mean, what an extraordinary article. It's remarkable. If you don't believe in God yet this morning or watching watching on the Internet, you would think it's bizarre. It's almost pathological. Almost like Paul, who said, For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. All right, there we have there we have the side road. Let's dig in. Two principles, his life and his death, that he speaks about in verse 21. Notice verse 21 again. The apostle Paul writes and says, For me, for to me to live is Christ. So the question, the first question we have to ask is. Which Christ is Paul talking about? Because every generation, there seems to be a new Christ that pops up. So years ago, uh, some of you weren't even born, there was a communist Christ, there was a socialist Christ, there was a revolutionary Christ. Of course, today we have a capitalist Christ, a health and wealth Christ. Oprah and New Age talk about the spirit of Christ. Or the Christ spirit. There's been all kinds of Christs. Perhaps best of all is the subjective Christ. Haven't you heard people say, I like to think of God like this. I like to think of Jesus like that. And normally all that they mean is that Jesus is made in your image. That he loves what you love and he hates what you, you hate. It's a kind of an amplified image of yourself. It's a domesticated Christ. Well, when Paul says, for me to live as Christ, he tells us which Christ he's talking about. So let's have a look chapter 2. He talks about chapter 2, verse 5. He talks about the historical Christ. Notice there, chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So which Christ is Paul talking about? He's talking about the historical Christ, the Christ that you read about in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were the eyewitness records. They were the source documents of the Christian faith. They were there. They wrote down what they saw and what they heard. It's historical, this Christ. It's not the Christ you and I make up. It's not the Christ of our imagination or our liking. No, it's the historical Christ who lived and died 2,000 years ago. I'm normally in the wrong place at the wrong time. Are you sometimes like that? Well, chances are, if I had lived 2,000 years ago in Palestine, chances are I would have seen God because he was here. Whether you believe in him or not, he was here. He was historically here. It's historically true. And this Christ is the man-God Christ. So he tells us there that Jesus was God 100% God. He tells us there that that uh, that he humbled himself. Uh that he that he um that he did not grasp equality with God. So there he was both God and man at the same time. 100% God, 100% man in one person. He says there, having emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Some people have sometimes argued that that means that Jesus emptied himself of his deity. That is not what Paul is saying. He was still God, but he took on the form of a man in order to rescue us and save us. Let me illustrate that. Imagine a professor at Witz, a professor of English And uh, she's done her Ph.D. in Shakespeare, and uh, she knows Shakespearean language and the plots and the books better than anybody. But when she speaks to her two-year-old son, she does not use Shakespearean English. Of course not. She uses two-year-old English. She empties herself of her Shakespearean English to be able to communicate. So God in the form of his son is still God in the flesh. But he empties himself of all his majesty and his grandeur in order that he may rescue us. He's a historical Christ. He's also a suffering Christ. Notice there chapter 2 verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, the Jews were waiting for a political economic Messiah. Much of Christendom is waiting for a health and wealth Messiah. But no, he came as a suffering Messiah. So the question is, why is that? Why, why did Jesus have to come as a suffering Messiah? Let me try and answer that by by saying that God has established certain eternal laws in the natural world and in the supernatural world. So in the natural world, there are eternal laws. There's the law of gravity. And whether you believe it or not, whether you like it or not, there's a law of gravity. You may self-identify as non-gravitational, But if you stand on a second floor and you drop a cup, it will go down. It will not go up. If you're an engineer building a bridge, two and two is four. And you may say to yourself, I don't actually like that. I think two and two is five. I think two and two is six. Well, my dear friends, the the bridge you are building will fall because those are eternal laws. So they are spiritual eternal laws. We are told in the Old Testament, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That is an eternal spiritual law. And you see that in the sacrifices of the Old Testament, which are then fulfilled in Christ. Our Western world finds that revolting. They hate Christ, and they hate the cross of Christ and the blood of Christ. I think our African culture understands that much better. Sometimes it's the wrong blood, but they do know without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Why is that? Because God is a holy God. Sin must be punished. God is a just God. And so sin must be punished, but he sends his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, the historical man who came onto planet Earth, to die on the cross, not for his own sin, but for the sins of people like you and me, so that we may experience the grace of God. remember when Jesus was on the cross one of the words he spoke you remember that he said it is finished so remember he didn't say I am finished he said it is finished meaning the debt has been paid the debt for our sin has been paid on the cross it is finished let me teach you a Greek word it's the Greek word tetelestai which means it is finished and it was a commercial word it wasn't a religious word when you paid off a debt when you paid made the last payment, you would say teta lestai. If you have a mortgage bond, so you have got two hundred and fifty monthly payments. When you pay the last payment, what do you say? Yes, teta lestai. It is finished. Christ cries out, "It is finished." Through his suffering, through his death, through his blood, he pays for our sin. And then notice chapter 2, verse 9. Who is this Christ? He is the resurrected Christ, chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Every knee shall bow, either willingly or unwillingly, There is no historical doubt that Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. No historical doubt. There is no doubt that there would be no remembrance of Jesus if his death had been the end. Thousands, tens of thousands under the Roman Empire were crucified. He was merely one of them. There would have been no remembrance of Jesus if, if his death had been the end. But no, there was the resurrection. God physically, bodily, historically raised him from the dead. The most important fact in all of history, that Christ, the Son of God, not only died, but that God raised him from the dead miraculously, supernaturally, proving that everything he said must be true. The very foundation of the Christian faith is the death and resurrection of Christ. He rose from the dead, and by rising from the dead, he not only conquers sin, he not only conquers Satan, but he conquers death, the last enemy. He conquers death. No wonder, when you understand that, Paul understood that, and many of us understand that. No wonder we echo the words of Paul. If Jesus is the Christ, if it actually happened historically, bodily, risen from the dead, if he is the Lord of heaven and earth, if he has conquered sin and Satan and death itself, well, surely, surely... For me to live is Christ. You will know that most people in our culture sadly have no greater purpose than themselves. Isn't that true? My family, my home, my marriage, my career, my money, my rights, my needs, my pleasures, my comfort. That's pretty much our culture. That's pretty much our world. And that's why people fight. Because they are stopping me from reaching my rights, my needs, my comforts, my pleasures. That's our world. What did L'Oreal say? Uh, L'Oreal say? She says, buy it because you are worth it. Whitney Houston sang, she said, learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. And it didn't end well. So the question is, what is your purpose? What is the point of your life? Why are you here? That is a serious question. That is a very serious question. It actually goes to the core of who you are. Why am I here? What's the purpose of my life? So all of us are like onions. We have different layers. And some of us smell more than others. But I, <laughs> but I won't mention any names. So we have different layers, your language, your education, your family background, your heritage, your race, your career. They're different layers, but at the core, like an under, you'll find your ultimate purpose, your ultimate goal, the reason you are here. So what is your purpose? And Paul tells us, for me to live is Christ. Now, that is the key truth, but there's an underlying truth there that we also need to notice when he says for me to live is Christ. He does not say for me to live is me, for me to live is my dreams, for me to live is my ambitions, my goal. No, he doesn't say that. For me to live is Christ. That is absolutely true. That is the key truth, but there's an underlying truth there where Paul is saying ultimate purpose will never be found in yourself. You will not find ultimate purpose in yourself. It is external, not internal. And whether you agree with that or not, that is how we are. You remember, I've often quoted George Bernard Shaw, who wasn't a Christian, and he wasn't talking about Christianity, but he was absolutely spot on when he said, This is the true joy of life, the being used up for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one. The being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. I mean, isn't that brilliant? Isn't that how we often are? We're a clod of little ailments and grievances complaining that the world will not devote itself to making me happy. Why? Because purpose is not found inside yourself, it's found outside yourself. It is external. What is your purpose? Is it more than just you and your ailments and grievances? Will it last the distance, by the way? Or will death cut it to an end? Will the center hold? Most nights uh, after Sabajin and I read the Bible and pray and and it's been lovely. It's been a lovely thing for us to do. And we often, we often talk uh, just how wonderful it is that the Lord has saved us. And, um, you know, after all these years, 50 years, I, I'm still amazed that the Lord has persevered with me and, because I know my heart. And I'm just so thankful that, that he saved us. And then we sometimes talk about the fact that how wonderful it is that the Lord saved us from living for ourselves. Because that is a wonderful thing. When the Lord saves you from living for yourself. My little life, my little marriage, my little family, my little career, my little activities. Is that all? Is that all? It's pathetic. Forgive me, guys, but it's pathetic if that's your purpose in life, if that's why you are here. It's just me and my little happiness. And we are so thankful that the Lord said that. So it wasn't us, it wasn't our idea, it's God who saved us from living for ourselves. Now, there are times, no doubt, when, when I'm self-centered and all those things. But overall, the Lord has saved me from living for myself, and I am so thankful. Paul says, "For me to live is Christ." One Saturday night a couple of years ago, Frank Davis, Frank and Zilla Davis, were they now were the Lord. Um, they were uh, the pastoral couple at our church in Kenilworth, in the south of Joburgs called St Paul's. And um, one Saturday night, he, uh, Frank, called me in with uh, with great uh, great anxiety. Um, You know, broken. His his daughter and his son-in-law had died that day in a fire. So I so I rushed off to be with them, and they shared and the grief and the trauma, and we prayed. You can imagine what had happened was that it was the middle of winter. It was cold. It was freezing cold, and uh, they had a gas canister heater in the lounge which had exploded. They had three children, 13, 10, and 8, and the house caught alight. And the kids escaped through the burglar bars, but the parents couldn't and died in the fire. I mean, it was traumatic, you can imagine. What was even worse was that I knew that their two other daughters, they had three daughters, the two other daughters in their teenage years had died of an extreme form of lupus. They had three daughters, two of them in a bizarre, unique kind of disease, illness, and the third in a bizarre fire accident. It doesn't get a whole lot worse than that. A couple of days later, I went to meet with them. Uh, Frank asked me to take the funeral and to preach. So we were planning the funeral service, and Frank said to me, still distressed and distraught and grieving, of course. And he said to me, Martin, when you preach... Um, don't worry about Melanie and Charles we know where they are don't worry about Zilla and me we'll be fine I want you to preach the gospel and I want you to preach Christ because they're family members who will be here who don't know Jesus see I think he got it the purpose is Christ All right, there we have the life let's have a look at his death What Paul says about his death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, now, I don't need to tell you that most people in our culture are unprepared for death, scared of death. So we don't talk about it. You don't like speaking about death, especially your own death. Philip of Macedon, father of Alexander the Great, instructed a servant to come into his room every day and say, Philip, you will die. (laughs) <laughs> in total contrast King Louis the Fourteenth decreed that the word death not be uttered in his presence I suspect we are more like King Louis than like Philip we fear death, we deny death we avoid thoughts about death, isn't that true in our culture? if you want to bring a braai or a, a big dinner To a crashing halt, you just lean across the table and say to your hostess, Mary, have you thought about your death lately? (laughs) You will be crossed off the Christmas card list. But Paul had no such inhibitions. It's quite extraordinary what he says. Let me read there from verse 21. "For, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which, shall, which, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Now imagine you were a clinical psychologist in Rome at the time of Paul. And you had to, you had to uh, spend time with Paul. Well, you would think that Paul has a screw loose. You would think that that he's a schizophrenic for me to live is to die. You'd think he's suicidal. You would say he needs to be kept under strict observation. But Paul is completely in his right mind if Christ is the truth. It is reasonable. It is rational what he says. If this life is growing in your love and knowledge of Christ, then the next life is consummation, isn't it? If this life is knowing Christ by faith, the next life we will see him face to face. You see, Paul understood the resurrection of Christ. That is is the key truth of history. The four Gospels, those authors we absolutely convinced that he not only died, but God raised him from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that he saw the resurrected Christ. The disciples saw the resurrected Christ. Others saw the resurrected Christ. In fact, 500 men at the same time saw the resurrected Christ. This is not irrational. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Notice again verse 23. Paul says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is better by far. The word depart there, the Greek term, it's a camping term. So it's a term, a phrase, a verb that was used when soldiers, uh, when soldiers struck up camp and moved on. That's the word, to depart. And that's the idea here in verse 23. When a Christian dies... We depart from this temporary makeshift camping life. And we go home. So I rejoice every time I have a birthday. And I've had many. It's one year closer. It's one year closer. I'm departing this broken world, this camp life. You know, camping camping is fine for a few days. But I mean, you get tired when the blown-up mattress keeps blowing down in the middle of the night. You get tired. You get tired of of wet blankets. You get tired of of uh, cooking on fires and public toilets and and noisy neighbours. And oh, the kids can mess up a tent. It is unbelievable. You want to go home where you have your own bed, you have a hot bath, you have properly cooked food. Well, that's what Paul says. He says, if I had a choice, I'd prefer to go home. I'm tired of this camping life. I want to go and sleep in my own bed and have a hot bath. Put on new clothes. I mean, what do you, what do, you do with someone like Paul? I mean, <laughs> he says, if I live, I live for Christ. If you kill me, I'll go to be with Jesus, which is better by far. Either way, I'm good. I mean, what do you, what do, you do with someone like that? Either way, I'm good. Some of you are in financial services. Here's the ultimate life insurance you are immortal until God takes you home, and then when He takes you home, you are even more immortal. And you don't have to pay a monthly premium, and there's no increase every year. It's free. <laughs> That's what Sean told us last week. It's absolutely free, it's the grace of God. You know one of my favorite verses, Psalm 139, verse 16. All the days ordained for you were written in my book before the first began. What does that mean? That means God knows the exact moment and day of my birth. He knows the exact moment and day of my death. My death will not surprise him. I may be killed by a bullet. I may be killed by a car crash. I may be killed by cancer, but that will be the secondary cause. The primary cause is God said, Martin, it's come to time to come home, you need to give those people at Christchurch Midrun and Love Trust a break. <laughs> I don't need to tell you that right now in our world, in our country, there's a lot of wind, there's a lot of rain, there's a lot of hail, and the campsite is all under water. There's water under the tent. Some of the guy ropes have snapped, there's a bit of a leak. But it's only a temporary stay. It's only short term. It's only camping. At some point, we're going to strike camp and go home. And you'll be home, and I'll be home in a city where God built the foundation. So the kingdoms of this world, and we can see it around us, the kingdoms of this world come and go. They rise and fall, don't they? They're made of canvas, they're not going to last the distance. Paul says I belong to another kingdom an eternal kingdom an unshakable kingdom it's built on a rock of foundation which is Jesus so while I'm still here on planet earth says Paul I'm going to serve Christ I'm going to serve his kingdom I'm going to serve his people I know it's tough there'll be a lot of blood sweat and tears no doubt about that but it's great I know I'll be in a fight but it's a great fight I know I won't always understand God's purposes. Many of them will be incomprehensible to me. But he's God, he's king. Someone read the book of Revelation and said, I don't understand it all, (laughs) which is true for most of us. But in the end, we win. That is the truth. We don't understand it all. But in the end, we win. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Question as I close, is your life about Christ? Is your death about gain? Because if it isn't, wouldn't today be a good day to take that step and submit to Christ the King? Let's pray. Perhaps this morning as we've been singing and praying, perhaps as you heard the testimony of Linda, as we've sat under the word of God, you have felt God the Holy Spirit press in upon your mind, press in upon your heart. And you know know that today's the day when you need to take a step. You need to cross a line. You do that through prayer. You do that by talking to God. And if you want to talk to God and call on him for mercy to save you, I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you the words, the prayer that will help you to get right with God. Let me tell you what the prayer is so that you can decide whether you want to pray the prayer. It's a very simple prayer, and you may not be ready to pray this prayer, and we understand that. But if you have felt God the Holy Spirit pressing in upon your heart and mind, then this may well be a prayer you would like to pray. Lord Jesus, I don't understand it all but I know that I need you. I know that Christ died on the cross for me. Will you rescue me? Will you make me a Christian? Will you help me to live under your leadership? Now, if you want to pray that prayer, it's very private, quietly in the back of your head between you and God. You just echo these words after I say them. Lord Jesus, I don't understand it all. But I know that I need you. I know that Christ died on the cross for my sin. Will you rescue me? Will you make me a Christian? Will you help me to live under your leadership? And Father, we thank you that when we call to you and call on you for mercy, that you hear and you answer. And so will you work amongst us even today for Christ's sake. Amen.